When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This episode is sponsored by local entrepreneur Danny O'Donovan of QuickMinutes.com. QuickMinutes is a specialized meeting management application that streamlines the administrative process in running a meeting. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Two Naris podcast. I'm your host, James Leonard, and this is my co-host, Timmy. We hope you enjoyed the last week's episode with Dr. Sharon Lambert, um, a lovely woman and a very interesting discussion. We could have went on for hours. I'm sure you would have listened to her for hours too. Um, and we have a very special guest this week too. But before we get to her, I just want to thank the 14 people who donate on our Patreon page and make this whole thing possible. Um, thank you very much. Also, thank you, thank you to Charlene Corkery from Box of Kindness who provides us with the gifts for each guest. Um, they're being well received and they're very cute indeed. So if you're interested in buying from her, uh, get in touch with us. If you want to know more about the Patreon or how you can contribute, head over to the Tunari's Facebook page. Also, we are delighted to announce that our new website is now live and you can get all the information there. Um, and you can contact myself and Timmy through that as well. It's the thetunarispodcast.com, yeah. all letters, no numbers. And I'm sure you'll agree the production has been very professional TV quality. Um, and that's thanks to Alan and Brian from Unity Media Network. If you want to know more about what they do or maybe you want them to do something for you, head over to unitymedianetwork.com or check them out on the various social medias. So with the intros done, and without further ado, I bring to you Katrina Toomey of Cockpenny Dinners. How are you keeping, Katrina? I'm good. I'm great good. to have you here. Yeah, and it's great to be here. Yeah, no, you were the, the, one of the top names on the list when we were looking <laughs> to source guests, and that right, Tim? That's it, yeah, yeah. yeah that's no. nice. Thanks. You've been a, a massive uh, person in my own family's um, journey as well. Like you're, you're still a big part of my brother's journey at the moment, um, in terms of uh, helping him, you know. And a long time ago, my mother would have worked with you as well inside in Penny Dinners once upon a time. She did. So, yeah. uh, you know, um, yeah. Thank I you very know. much for being here. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about Penny Dinners, where how it began, and and how old it's it's I how will, long it's around? I will, and I suppose I, I'll start by saying how proud your mother would be. Thank you. To see you and, you know, your brothers yeah. today, like, you know, she really would be very proud. And I know we've another little bit of work to do, but we'll all do that together because it just gets bigger and bigger, you know, everybody helping each other. And that's what it's all about. But going back to penny dinners, we're around since famine times. And, you know, when we had famine times, we were ruled by the English. And, but again, um, English people that were here found it hard to look at the Irish being very hungry. So they set up soup kitchens and they had 
penny dinners and what they did was they would give a quart of soup and some bread just to keep people fed and to keep them from you know dying and stuff so that kind of went on for a good couple of years and in 1888 then a group of like-minded women and some men got together they were business people in Cork they would have been English and they would have been I suppose Irish English at that time they would have got together and uh, decided to start the penny dinners and the practice, the, the name penny din- dinners came because people could buy a ticket or a token and leave it in a church or a shop and anybody that was hungry could go in and get the ticket and head over to penny dinners because obviously they didn't have the money to pay for the, the ticket. But people that were kind at that time, business people, were were very good to the Irish and they put the tickets in the churches and the many churches around so people didn't go hungry and like that was back in famine times and in the eighteen hundreds but we're still around, you know. Mm. We would have thought that penny dinners would have you know, when we came on when we were going through the I suppose the Celtic Tiger and everything, we would have thought that penny dinners would have closed and a lot of people would ask the question of me, where would you like to see penny dinners in 10, 20 years' time or 30 years' time? We wouldn't like to see penny dinners because we should be in a place now whereby everybody's educated, it's open to everybody, and we all know that hunger shouldn't be on our list of grievances or what's wrong in our country. But unfortunately, it is. And I suppose during the pandemic, it's never been brought more home to us that anybody can fall in to poverty or hunger at any at any time in their lives. It's just, you know, the flick of a switch. And for a lot of people that had to come to us during this pandemic, it was very hard for them because, first of all, they went on a payment of 350 which was great. It meant they had some money. But it meant that their money was reduced a lot. But they still had the same outgoings. They still had the same bills. So it meant they didn't have the money for the food. And they had to come to us. And it was a great shock to their system. On top of the fear that they had. Would they get their jobs back? Would they get, you know, the coronavirus? Would any member of their family get sick? So there was a lot of things going on. But hunger crept in there as well. And not having food. And we had a lot of communities that were that were working. And paying their rents. You know, they weren't in receipt of any hat payment or anything and a lot of these people didn't receive the COVID-19 payment either so we helped out various different communities that were living in the country because they had no food no money no nothing and a lot of them are now without homes as well a lot of them are I suppose couch surfing and hoping that their friends can tough it out like another little bit longer but we saw different levels of poverty and different levels of fear in a lot of people and again it was all based around not having enough money for to buy food so like to be in existence for that length of time in our country you wonder does the government ever learn anything do you know why are there a need for charities like us that provide the basic simple need that everybody has and that is you have to have food to survive mm. to live and we shouldn't be there, but we are. Yeah, I remember, sorry Tim, I probably remember you know, a few years ago when I was in addiction, I was in with yourself a few times, and um, I was nervous going in there at the beginning, do you know? Yeah. Um, and I would have had very low confidence as well. I, you know, I was strung out of my head on heroin at the time, but I was always hungry, do you know? 
And uh, I remember going in, I used to go in kind of last, you know, because when you're leaving, you get a box of munchies leaving, you know. <laughs> and they'd be kind of last. That was just because I knew you. Yeah, yeah. No, I, still eating the munchies. I know, I know, yeah. <laughs> but um, I used to be couch surfing, you know, like yourself, like what you were saying there, um, staying in people's couches and sometimes sleeping in garden sheds, what have you. But um, I remember going in there and three courses I got, I think, you know, dessert, uh, bacon yeah. and cabbage and a cup of coffee and then a box of biscuits and bread, what have you. But um, what struck me in there was there was loads of people in there. I know that was addicted, alcohol and drugs, but there was a lot of people that weren't addicted, working people. Yeah. You know, that's a kind of a, yeah. people might think of that like. No, they don't. A lot of people just think that it's all based around addiction and it's not. It's the same with rough sleepers that are on the street or, or, or people that are staying in hostels. It's not all about addiction. People just fall into this poverty trap for whatever reason. And it's very hard to get out of it then because if you have money, you can't get out of anything. It's as simple as. And that's easily understood by everybody. But we have a lot of people that may have been working and lost their jobs and they were paying rents without any subsidies. And again, they would have to come to us. We have a lot of people that come in, you know, elderly people that are lonely, just basically lonely. And they come in for a bit of, you know, companionship and just to have someone to talk to because, you know, people have often said, it's grand to come in here, you have someone to talk to rather than be at home all day long, like and looking at the four walls and talking to yourself and going absolutely crazy. Mm -hmm. Whereas you spend a couple of hours in here and it, does them then for the rest of the you know the day we have people that have lost especially the men that lose their wives you know the the elderly men the wives would have been doing everything and the men can't boil an egg and then they come in because they're lost and um they find you know find a bit of friendship inside amongst other people that come in to eat and uh, amongst ourselves and they'll come down and they'll ask us various things it's not just about the food they'll ask us you know, loads of different questions about different things, fill out a form, help them with that, or uh, where's such a place. And, you know, we, we have a lot of things going on in there that go on on a, a daily basis inside. But it's not it's not addiction that mm. brings people kind of into us. Like, it's everything. Addiction can be just one part of what brings people in our doors. In terms of mental health, does it, is there a lot of people in there suffering with their mental health? particularly in the last few months with the coronavirus um, being at everybody's doorstep, like mental health. In my own home, I was locked in here for 13 weeks trying to finish off my my, um, my dissertation and my final year project in college. And I, I don't know how I coped. You know, I, I was literally in here for 12 to 14 hours a day. I can imagine people being homeless, living in tents, and having to be isolated from their normal kind of groups of people. And it must have been crazy. And for rough sleepers, what we saw in particular was the isolation that they obviously felt because normally they're used to seeing people around the streets. There's, you know, there's people out at night in the pubs and the restaurants and all over the place at the cinema, and you'd see a load of people. But when we started going around at night, they only saw us. And we only saw them. There was nobody else to be seen on the street. And so we were able to pick up quickly on what was happening to them. Their mental health suffered greatly because it was awful sad to see them. They were broken. And they, they were broken in ways that had never been broken before. They were lost. They were lonely. And they were worried because a lot of them would say to us, will you make sure that you 
check out like that I'm around tomorrow night and if I'm not like will you come looking for me and we did and we wouldn't go away we'd still go around searching just to make sure we saw that person and if somebody like the lads would come back in the bikes and I suppose what we started during it there was nobody looking after the rough sleepers when we decided that we'd go out and we'd bring them the food at night because they needed it their days were long enough without their nights being long without food. So what we did was at um, eight o'clock, we hit the streets with a four course meal in a bag, plus sandwiches and treats then for during the night and water and a juice. But they were very, very worried that they'd get the coronavirus and they were worried that they'd go down and nobody would know that they could be found in some hole or found behind some shed or found behind somewhere in a field in a tent and that nobody would look for them. So we just kind of between ourselves like and it was a treat to watch the lads because the first night we went out, the lads were saying, what will we do? I said, we figure it out as we go along. And off they went and it figured itself out very quickly for all of us. And you could hear them. We could be in Patrick Street and they could be way down, say, by the Opera House. And as sure as God, especially our Tommy, mm-hmm. you would hear it a mile away, like, you know, grub, do you want a bit of grub? And he's screaming and shouting. And it was like we became the voice of the street because there wasn't any other voice, only just the lads. They didn't hear me and they didn't hear Tom that was driving, but they heard the lads and they were calling everybody's name. And then if they couldn't see somebody, they'd cycle away and they'd come back. I have him. I found him. And then there would be a sigh of relief from everybody because everybody wanted to make sure, all the lads around the bikes wanted to make sure that everybody came through this. And that was just... A remarkable thing to see the way that they worked so hard to make sure that um that everybody was seen to and they'd ask did you see such a person if they couldn't find them but to see them peddling away like mad and they covered some serious ground on the bikes and we just hit every place but again the lads it brought them to a whole new place for themselves as well when they were being of service and i suppose a basic fundamental thing for anybody to have inside them is to be allowed to be of service to somebody. And the lads were, were given that freedom and we didn't have to do anything, only drive around with the food that took care of the whole lot of it. But the camaraderie, they knew everybody's name and they knew where everybody was used, you know, would sit or hide out or something like that. But they, they would know how to get to everybody very quickly. And um, you'd, they'd come back and they'd say, you better come down here and have a look at him and see, is he all right? They were very caring in the whole lot of it. And I saw like that when we have our new warehouse, I was saying, you know, I'd love the lads to, to be trained in as first responders because I saw such a great deal in them. And it was, I suppose, a privilege for me to see the lads just doing so well at this and what they were capable of doing. And when they found that their strength, you know, that they had to rely on each other to do this, and that they didn't have to come back to me to say, is it all right if I do this or all right if I do that? I just said, do it. And they went off and they did it. And just to see that and to see how much they grew was just truly remarkable. Do you know the lads know that you're on the boats just to let our viewers know? Yeah. The lads that were driving these mountain bikes were, yeah. were, were people that were homeless themselves, yeah. had addiction problems, yeah. mental health problems, but were all uh, in recovery. Yeah. You know, and they were doing well through connecting with Penny Dinners. Do you want to 
Uh, well, they're, they're the lads from the recovery group. And when I was thinking of how to kind of look after the people that would be sleeping rough, I, I just it just came to me, the bikes just in a flash or something. And then who would do it? And I said, no better than the lads, because they're a great sense of fun no matter what. And I know they would like the spirit for anybody because some nights would be out and the laughter was unreal but we had tears as well so it was the recovery group did all of this mm. and what a job you know and like i'd say they're only waiting for the next crisis because they want to know what they'll be doing they'll probably be <laughs> looking for mopeds or something but i uh, think uh, <laughs> that 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 point in time was captured brilliantly by um daniel corker of rollover films can you remember we done that we done that um he just shows the cork city in complete yeah. lockdown and like what we what we forget about is people that are linked in with charities like yourselves, um, key workers, support workers. Everybody was gone home. Gone. People still needed the support, they and did. and and his videographer or videography showed a completely silent city, and me narrating on it, and then it comes to the boys and the bikes yeah. with the smiles and the, and the dinners, and I suppose that was poignant as well for me in terms of. I was working with um on a team kind of collaboration between the Cocky T B, the Drugs Task Force, HSC City Council. There was about six or seven of us there. Um any homeless person that had symptoms they'd need to isolate. So we were coordinating the isolation, mm. putting them into B and B's. If the B and B couldn't provide a dinner, we'd contact ourselves. The boys then were bringing the dinners up yeah. to them. And we were just trying to make it as comfortable as, as we could so that they could isolate. Yeah. And there was, some of them had success stories out of it. We were able to place people in better places yeah. afterwards than before they came in. Mm-hmm. Do you know, so like there was a lot, there was a lot happened over the lockdown. Huge, yeah. It was and a huge effort. Even going to the, you know, to the hotels and the B&Bs with the food, and we went to a huge amount of vulnerable people. And we had one guard that used to go to a man his, whose daughter lived in Holland and she couldn't get to to see if she couldn't come home over the, the virus and she was worried about her dad so she contacted my sister who contacted me and we said okay we'll check in on him and the guard used to go out, Ken used to go with a hamper to him and then Ken would get the daughter on the phone and he used to watch the dad like you know he was in his age he's talking to the daughter in Holland but it was, there was a load of those stories and like the lads were doing it and they were giving people the phone if they needed for to, to, to ring somebody. Like there was no ending to what mm. the lads did and they left no stone unturned. But going to the B and B's and going to the hotels was very sad because people and children would be sitting on the steps, you know, on the stairs when we'd be coming and the lads would come back and they would be very affected by it. They said, That looks awful and I said, No, it looks wrong. It shouldn't be happening. And it should never have happened. It should not have happened at all. And this is one thing I would urge the government to strongly think of, that when you put somebody someplace, feed them. Don't have them waiting and depending on somebody to come along to feed them. They should put that have put that in place because to see the children sitting on the steps or standing outside hotels or standing outside B&Bs for when we'd come along with the dinners, that was very sad to look at and very, very wrong. And it, it did affect, you know, the lads. I suppose we're used to seeing things in penny dinners, but the lads even though some of them would have said we'd have been like that at one time when they saw it in a different light and from the light that they saw it from, they wanted to do more and you could see them chatting. And with the meetings and penny dinners, we run meetings twice a week and it was Connor, Tommy and Alan started the meetings inside and they're very successful now. And again, like saying, I'm very proud of them. 
is kind of not even doing them justice but what I'm proud of is the fact that they realise like that everybody needs some bit of help and that they're able to give help now and they're able to pull people along and I've seen them pull loads of people along or they'd come up and they'd say waste of time and I'd be saying stay at it for another little while and they would and it would, it would happen but it, it's again the government should be looking I suppose at what we do we have plenty of solutions. There's talking about the doom and gloom that the government is useless because they know it. And they have letters morning, noon and night from everybody about the doom and gloom that's in this country. And when I say that, it's just the hardship, the pain that many families are um, affected by. And of course, they might email the government or write to their local TD or whatever. So the government are well aware. But what they're not tapping into is the likes of us at Penny Dinners who have solutions that will work and they're not listening to them. Instead, they're sitting down coming up with some fandangled idea that this could work and then they put it in place and it doesn't work. So we have a wheel and instead of filling the gaps in the wheel, what they're doing is like they're just making the wheel go backwards and there's more things falling away because a lot of the services that are there are strapped and they can't, they don't meet the demand that's out there. Mental health is is really gone through the roof. And a lot of people that may have been on just, you know, just entering mental health issues during COVID-19, they definitely went into them because we saw a change physically in people's appearances as well coming to us. That The fear, the fear factor that was there was unreal. And there were no services available to anybody. They couldn't go any place. They couldn't talk to anybody. And they found that very, very, very difficult. So again, Stripping everything away when we have a pandemic is not the right thing to do. We should have been enhancing the services and putting more in place so that everybody would have got through this together. With the amount of suicides that we only had another one the other night that that we've had, it has like suicide is always there and it's, it hurts and tears a family apart. It just just doesn't affect the person. Who dies it affects the family forevermore but it's we have no answers to it but we have a load of people presenting with mental health saying that they're worried about their mental health and then they're told okay come back in so many weeks you know you're waiting you could be waiting two months three months four months five months for an appointment and sure that's not good enough for the person they need immediate attention there and then and that's what we're lacking with we're lacking on-site facilities we're lacking walking facilities if somebody wants to come off a of heroin and they come to you and they come to me and they'd say can you do anything to help me and you could refer them to a service and straight away they'll say what they always say shall be waiting weeks for an appointment out there we need we need these services and we need a load of on-site walking facilities for people because when we lose one per person it's too much but the amount of people that we're losing now we lost three people Thursday, Friday and Saturday of last week like that's three of our fellow human beings mm. these are not just three statistics these are three people that were known and loved by many and it's very important as well when you say um, when somebody does come looking for help like it's a very very hard thing for somebody to do to ask for help particularly men you know uh, to ask for help, saying that they're struggling with their own kind of thinking or mm -hmm. or the way they feel, you know. So um, to go back and do that a second time, 
it doesn't really happen, does it, Katrina? You know, no, it doesn't, and we see that, and that hurts us the most because I know we're able to to help, but we just don't have the resources, the facilities, in order to do this, and and taking that in mind, with the lads that we have in recovery we decided that we tried to pilot some programs and show to the government and show to all that's out there that there is a right way of doing things and there's not just a way of doing things that you're housing people and you're putting them places and you're doing stuff and then not giving the wraparound supports for them. So we have a house and we have there's three two-bedroom departments in there and six people living in there. They get to know us because some of the criteria to get into that house is you come work with us in Penny Dinners, you volunteer your time, you get a chance to know us and we get a chance to know you. So if you have a problem, if something arises, we can sit down, chat about it and not be afraid of, you know, speaking to each other. The other one is got to be a clean house. If you're looking for help, you're looking for help because you have an addiction. And if we're offering to help you, we're offering you to clean up your act as regard in regards to addiction. So it has to be clean. And we state that and we say... We won't, we'll stick by this. This is it. You be clean. Your house is clean. And you have a chance to move on with your life. You have a chance to settle down. You're in a safe, very safe environment. So I suppose part of the criteria for getting into the house is that you sign up to what we're offering. And then we make sure you stick by it. Because if you can't stick by it, you're not going to get clean. And we're of no help to you. So what's the point in us offering a service that's not going to benefit you? Because... What we're offering is to benefit you. We get nothing out of it, only the satisfaction and, and the knowledge knowing that people that have moved in to our place have, have a chance to get on with their life and to have the supports, they have the backup. If they ever worry about anything, they can come to us. But again, if they relapse, we'll tell them, out. And the next house that we have, if you want to get back in there, we'll start all over again. But we don't just abandon a person that comes out like we will help them every step of the way as well. We don't just say, out, you're forgotten about. That doesn't happen because we are human beings as well. And we wouldn't like any of this to happen to us. And we would like somebody to have the patience as well with us like to, to get through it. So we, we look at it from a very, I suppose, um, probably a, a very mothering kind of a, 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 an attitude in that, when we're offering to look after somebody, we really want to look after that person and we want them to know we want to look after them and we ask them to allow us to look after them. But then we say, you sign up to it as well. It's not just us. You've got to be 100% and buy into this as well. And it does work. And um, it's good to see the lads that are in the house, you know, coming on and getting cars and their licenses and doing all that business and, and to see them you know, doing things together mm-hmm. and, and having fun. I know recently they did a big long walk and just to see a photograph full of all, you know, strong looking men with big smiles on their faces and had a drink or a drug inside like is just an amazing thing to see. <laughs> and it's it's it you know, it's it's a really happy thing for everybody and it's encouraging. And I think that's something you could look at as well. You know, encourage people, you know, telling your stories because people need that as well. Sometimes people don't have the know-how on, on how to get clean. They have, they want to do it, but they haven't the will, power. They haven't the know-how how to do it. And they could be a bit lonely and a bit lost as well on that. Just on that point, Katrina, the point, like our motivation for the podcast is for exactly what you're saying. Yeah. 
like people want like if you're in addiction or poor mental health or you're in a bad place in your life nobody wants to be like that but they're just afraid to seek help or afraid to step into a room or afraid to contact yourselves or whoever but this podcast can bring the information to them everybody has a smartphone these days yeah i don't know you can get wi-fi everywhere just log on to the podcast and you'll have all the information there. At least when they're contacting you, they have a face to go with the name now. Yeah. Same with Sheila and yeah. same with whoever else comes on. You know, yeah. and like, I just want to touch on a point you spoke about there a while ago. Right, you're in Pennydin, was a long time now, and you're coming across very sad cases. Um, There was three homeless people died in the last week. There's been a good few in the last month. And we're, we're talking now, let's say, mid towards the third week of July we are in right now, right? How is it as somebody working in the service? How do you deal with the, the loss and, and the sadness and the trauma? I know we had Sharon Lambert on previously and I've seen her writing about vicarious trauma. It's like, let's say if a child experiences trauma and you're working with that person later in life, you can be traumatised by their trauma. Do you know? So how do you deal with that? I think we have to be practical, and in Penny Dinners, it's all about being practical because if somebody comes to me hungry, I have to feed them. I remember years ago, my daughter was inside in Penny Dinners with me. It was a Sunday morning, and a young couple came in with a baby about 10 months, and uh, she she's 27, 28 now, my daughter, but she was only about 15, 16 at the time, and she was chatting away, being nice to them, and she spotted that the couple poured the orange juice into the bottle and they gave it to the baby, and the mother, they weren't Irish, but the mother turned around and she said, um, we're very hungry. And the dad put his head down, you know, he was kind of embarrassed. Um, my daughter called me into the cubbyhole and penny dinners and she was bawling her eyes out. I said, go back out. And she said, no, you go out. I said, no, you go out. I said, because they're already after been talking to you. If they have to say the same mm. to me, it's going to hurt them more. So I said, go out. And she said, no. I said, you better go out there, no, because I said, you can't do that to them. And she went out and she called me a few choice names like going out. But when we were going home then in the car, she was going to ask all our friends in school, what could they buy like for to help that couple for the following day, you know, and they had things like nappies and baby wipes and baby food and stuff. So she kind of got very practical. But if I didn't push her back out there, it would have meant that that poor couple would have had to probably tell me their story all over again, which would have probably turned their stomachs and not, they wouldn't have been able to eat. But she went back out and she sat with them while they were eating and chatted away as best they could because their English was quite good. But for her, it was a learning curve as well because she came home and, and she was on and on so much about what she was going to do for them. I said, jeez. They were not going to be able to carry all you're going to get for them. But like I, I could see then that she had learned heart. how to be yeah. practical as well. And I think that's what the volunteers learn inside. They come up to me and they say, you're probably needed. And I would always say to them, if you think you can handle it, just call me. And uh, I would go down, I would sit down, I would talk to that person. And no matter how big an issue is for that person, we're probably used to dealing with so many issues that we can deal with the one that they have that's causing them the biggest concern. But when it comes to somebody dying, it breaks our heart. It really does. And I suppose the only consolation we can take from it is that we have tried to help them while they were alive and we fed them and cared for them and looked after them and given them stuff. But when we lose them, we're also conscious of the fact that there's a lot of loneliness around dying on the streets. That's just, just horrific. 
and we don't like to to see that we had one man that wouldn't come into penny dinners rain hail wind or snow and the volunteers just go for the scrambled egg and like in the tray like to be like something but the volunteers all got so used to him and then nobody liked they knew how to make a scrambled egg they knew how to butter his toast for him and the way he liked his cup of tea and you'd see them doing it like it was never left to me they'd pick it up very very quickly so I think in penny dinners if you don't learn all about penny dinners on one day you're not going to learn anything about us you know we have students that come into a student transition you know they do the fourth year and uh, they come in and sometimes they don't get it on the first day and they're watching because it's all unusual for them there to be feeding people like and they think that they're there to watch but then when you tell them they have to peel the potatoes peel the carrots and they have to do all of that and they have to make hundreds and hundreds of sandwiches and they have to wrap up you know so many hundreds of different things and the wash up and all of that they realize this is hard graft like this is not an easy thing at all so when they're peeling the potatoes and if you look at their faces they don't want to peel potatoes they've never peeled potatoes before and we let them work away and then they could peel the potatoes with a butter knife you know and we and somebody be said you see what they're I said, no leave them alone leave them alone leave them alone and they'll know they can't go until so many pots are filled with potatoes and they'll come back the following day and say my mom said there's a potato peeler is there or a, a different kind of a knife you know we said there is you were the topic of conversation anyway that yeah. evening I'd say. you know but <laughs> it's great because when they come back then give them a potato peeler or a sharp knife like to peel the potatoes it's so easy then to do it that way. Can you imagine trying to peel a potato with a butter knife? So when they come back the following day and they find there's an easy way of doing it, they breathe a sigh of relief that they can actually do it and not be hurt, you know, mm-hmm. doing it. And a lot of people would say, why don't you get a potato peeler, you know, one of those machines? And I'd say, that's the social hub of penny dinners because there could be 10, 15 people peeling potatoes all at the one time. And the loudest laughter is coming from that corner and it's great because they're asking other volunteers who are peeling with them, you know, what goes on here and what happens. And you can hear everybody telling, their, you know, how, you know, why we do this and what this person likes and what that person likes, you know. And then when the students get a chance then to feed people on the floor, they quickly get it. Like, so after a week, the students are ready to run penny dinners. They know it all. And more importantly, they want to do it. So our young people get it very, very quickly inside in penny dinners. And we've a huge kind of diverse range of, I suppose, volunteers from all walks of life. We've some that just want to come in and peel the potatoes. We've some that want to come in and do the wash up. And we've some that want to come in and make sandwiches and nothing else. That's just what they want to do. Then we have a core team of volunteers who can do everything. They'll do the cooking and, and, and they can run it, you know, and do all of that. But not everybody, and so everybody gets their own little corner. We've one woman that comes in to clean the toilet. And that's. I have a question for you. Um, do you have people inside there, uh, helping psychologists or psychotherapists helping with 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 people coming into penny dinners looking for help? You know, with their no. mental health, you haven't. Wouldn't no. this be a great opportunity to, to N- not not in penny dinners because yeah. we've only a kitchen and we've only a dining area. Yeah. But when we have the new building, that's our goal with UCC to mm-hmm. work very hard on that so one. So it's a good opportunity. It's to, a good opportunity. This podcast is a good opportunity to get it out there. And yeah. if any psychologists or psychotherapists or whatever yeah, have um, an hour or two to spare on a weekly basis. So that we have our walk-in you know, 
on-site facility for yeah. people that they can come in. We'll also have, we have 52 doctors that are going to give us one day free mm-hmm. in the year. And that means people that are working that can't afford a doctor can go in to this doctor because we've noticed that a lot of young people in their 30s, they'll take their children to the doctor, you know, but they won't pay for themselves because it's 60 or 70 euro and they could buy food or pay a bill or do something. So they're very, very reluctant to go. So then in later stages of illnesses, when they have no choice but to go to the doctor, it's kind of too late for a lot of them. So we're going to put this doctor there so that people can go and, and see this doctor and not be worried about the payment. We're also going to have a dentist on site as well, and it'll be the same thing. And they're all very excited about being able to help in in this fashion as well. And we have a choir in Penny Dinners called the High Hopes Choir. And because that's such a great success story, it's, you know, years ago when they came to me and asked me, you know, would I help out? Would I coordinate the choir? Would I start with them? I was saying, oh, geez, I've done so much, but I do love music. So I said, all right, I'll do it. On one condition that I just uncoordinate that I'm left sing with the choir. So they said, if you want to. So I said, all right. And I took it on and I sing with them. And any time I perform with them, I've you're like there and you can feel everybody's heart giving of their best. Like it's it's all, it's it's amazing. And you want to sing more, whether you can sing or whether you can sing, it doesn't matter. The song that comes out is the heart to everybody and it gets to, to everyone and everybody joins in. And again, we've been number one in the charts three times, like with Codeline and Christy Moore. I'm named up, I know Christy Moore, and we've had a Bono and Snow Patrol. They're and... all very welcome on the podcast, by the oh. way. <laughs> Hi, Bono. <laughs> but, but, you know, just just to be able to, to have these opportunities as well. And, you know, a lot of people would say a couple of years ago, I had no hope. Now I'm given hope. You know, and that's to be part of that journey, like with people, is amazing too. And to witness that amount of hope coming out of coming out of people, and to witness the amount of love they all have for each other, because they all grow emotionally together and they become strong. And um, if any of them are kind of feeling a bit weak, you have the strength of that choir. And then if we go out and we sing. Um, no matter where we go and people ask us to come back and, and they love it and our musical director is an amazing man he's French, Fabrice and he's an amazing singer as well himself so he sings as a treat I suppose for us in the choir because um, he actually we had a funeral of one of our guys last Saturday You know, we went to the crematorium and Fabrice came down and he sang and uh, with Tommy McGreevy who sang two songs and then we finished with Fabrice who sang Everybody Hurts and it just resonated with everybody that was there we all hurt sometime in our lives and for some of us it can last longer than for others, some get healed you know fairly quickly or, or find healing somewhere but for others it lasts a very long time and again with addiction that spreads out into the families and it hurts the families it's not just the addict, it's the family. And and sometimes when the addict is an addict, he's unaware of how much he's hurting or how much she's hurting. And the family is aware of how much they're hurting themselves and they feel that hurt inside of them. And sometimes f- for them, even in the recovery process, there's always the fear that something will happen because this is your child or your brother or your sister, you know, and... That's the pain 
that we all have. And I suppose if we don't all look out for each other, we're going to have a lot more pain. I think yeah. it's just the fact that, and and I see it in penny dinners, you know, when people come in to eat, if somebody new comes in, someone will push up and say, sit down here, boy, or sit down here, girl, or they'll move and let them in. And they're all aware like that it is difficult for somebody to come to penny dinners because I suppose we are a soup kitchen and who wants to be going to a soup kitchen in 2020? And, um, do you know, just bring you back a little bit there. Do you know, uh, you mentioned earlier that there's a meeting going on inside in penny dinners for people. It doesn't matter for alcoholism, drugs, gambling, food, whatever it may be. Whatever. It doesn't matter. You come in, you talk about whatever's going on for you. Mm -hmm. You listen to people in the room. You can associate with whoever's there, you know. Is that meeting still going on? They go on every Tuesday and Friday night. With social distancing, yeah. obviously, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's working out. So, yeah, it, really what time is it on every? Seven. Seven on Tuesdays and seven on Fridays. Yeah, that's just for anybody. It doesn't matter. Anybody, and you just show because up. Because I've been it. to that meeting. Yeah. And... I got a fair sense of gratitude for what I have in my own life because I was sitting next to people that just picked their sleeping bag up off the off a, a shelter and walked in and they're trying to get clean. If somebody like that can want to get themselves clean and sober, you know, um, I got so much from yeah. that meeting. Um, and you can feel it and it's very tangible. Like You can actually feel it and... I suppose what we're trying to do in Penny Dinners, especially with the new warehouse, is that we're, we're trying to not save people, but to let people save themselves, to, to be to be there for them. And we just want to, I suppose, when you say when you pick up the sleeping bag, you knew you were going home, mm. but you saw them walking off with the sleeping bag that kind of would cause a lump in our throat as well. Like we want to call them back. We want to say, we want to do something for you right now. But again, our hands are tied. We have the facilities. We have the know-how, but we have the facilities and we want to do that. And we would urge the government like, not, not to hurt the nation anymore. It's hurt enough and the people are hurt enough and that no man, no woman, no child should be hungry in this country or they shouldn't be without. And a lot of people would say, don't people draw on themselves? Don't people do this? No, they don't. Anybody can, you know, anything can happen. For example, if there's a husband and wife working or partners work, you know, and then one of them gets cancer, their whole life is turned upside down. Their whole financial state is, is, is status is turned upside down. You know, everything then and then they probably, you know, end up losing their partner, their wife, their husband. And then a whole life is turned upside down and a whole way of living is gone and you have to adapt to a new way with less income coming in. And that can be detrimental for a huge amount of families. So it's not all about the addiction. It's about the other illnesses that happen to people as well. It's about unemployment. It's about depression. It's about these mental health issues that everybody have. So if the services were working, the numbers wouldn't be growing. So the fact that the numbers are growing speaks volumes. We need services that work and we need services that go on all day and all night. You just can't have an episode at nine o'clock in the morning when it suits a service to be open 
what if you have it at nine or ten o'clock at night and if that service is there that could be the difference in that person's life about being alive or being dead so we have to we have to look into this and we have to stop hurting everybody that's been hurt it's like penny dinners it's not it's you know it reminds me of the famine times like the famine was not just a shortage of potatoes it was a result of colonization ethnic cleansing Mm-hmm. oppression, pillage, all this stuff from at the hands of the crown. But Cork Penny Dinners, it's not a response to hunger. It's a response to poverty, inequality, generations of corruption and all that. So, like, by feeding modes, what, what you're doing, and, you're like, that's not it. I know you're branching into the recovery, you're branching into the housing, you're, mm-hmm. you're trying to expand the project because... You're you're feeding people to come back in the door, but they're not their quality of life isn't isn't improving. But now you're trying to step into that field. Mm-hmm. It's a big undertaking, and I'd it urge is. any councillor or city councillor TD to come out and meet you. You know, get on board. You know, drive, get a bit of will behind it in Parliament. And we have it. we have push TDs it, from the north side forward. here as well. Like you know, we have, and we need. I t- I tell you what, years ago when you talk about famine times, we weren't ruled by the Irish at that time. We run the British rule. Mm. And we blame them for everything that was happening in our country. They're not ruling us now. Fair point. It's a fair word. They're not ruling us now. Yeah. And that is something we must look at. And it's something that we can all stand together firmly on. We have a new government in place now after a very, very long time. They'll be under fierce scrutiny because of the COVID 19. They'll be under savage pressure. But people will have seen frontline workers and they will have seen them. And I'm talking about when I say frontline, it's the nurses, the doctors, everybody that went out there, all the retail workers, the bus drivers, those, the train drivers, those that had to go out there and they had to keep the country ticking over. We saw what a frontline worker had to do. But we, more importantly, we saw what a frontline worker does all the time. It's not just at the time of a pandemic. This is what they do. And people realize now that when you see the nurses out in the street you know fighting for their for their pay because uh, their pay is so bad and when you see firefighters out there when you when you see the army saying that they're not being paid enough and other places like that and retail workers need more money because they haven't enough to make their ends meet as well i think everybody now will not allow that happen again because we see what retail workers are, we see what nurses, what doctors are, what paramedics are, ambulance drivers, you know, our fire personnel, our Navy, everybody, our search and recovery groups. We have Cork City Missing Persons Search and Recovery. And we, they came on board with us. Well, they're always on board with us. But we were strapped when, when the COVID-19 struck and when people were being let go from their jobs. We couldn't cope with the demand for hampers and St. Vincent's Hurling Football Club came on board and they said that we could have the use of their place above. So we moved that operation up there and we have a group of men that volunteer and they do a lot of mountain climbing and they all know each other, but they can go the distance and more importantly, they'll get the job done. So I think I went in for all of five minutes and they had everything laid out. And I said, that's all wrong. We'll do it this way. And they said, oh, God, here she is again. <laughs> but we changed it. And I said, this will work. And it did work. But what a team, you know, you, you couldn't find them anywhere. They were just absolutely amazing. And then Vincent's gave us their bar manager and their caretaker as well. And the bar manager, he just 
ploughed in with everybody else, made the hampers, got everything ready. And more importantly, he made some food every day for the lads up there so that, you know, they'd be fed. And um, it was just amazing the way that operation worked out. And then people were saying, will you have enough food? Bus Aaron said they'd fill a bus for us, they filled seven. And then to hear, see them arriving up, uh, uh, you know, up at St. Vincent's with cockpenny dinners written up like as their destination. And all the drives that went on all over the place for the food, you know, all the other clubs came on board, like Mayfield, GAM, the, we had the Glen, we had Brian Dillons, we had loads of them. They all got on board and they brought food. Why? Because they knew that they would have had club members whose families would have been struggling and they saw what we were doing. So they came on board and they helped us and not just helped us by doing food drives for us. They delivered hampers as well. And we had the Gardaí and Cork City Missing Persons, you know, Search and Recovery Group. They were out morning, noon and night delivering the hampers for us. And we made sure that nobody kind of went hungry through this and we tried to take that fear out. But if we were able to do that operation with about seven men up in Vincent's, a massive operation delivering thousands of hampers every week. Can you imagine if we had a government-run hamper-making facility that, you know, what we could do? And so my point is, is like, if you're going to do something, do the thing right. Don't be doing it wrong. Or don't be thinking that this will work and that will work without thinking about it. Have a plan and think it through and look at what works and stop doing some of the crap that's been done out there because it's not working. Look at the, the housing at the minute. Look, we have families on the housing list for 15, 20 years looking for houses, 10 years, and they're still not getting homes. Like, no, they know they have to build them, so why not get out and build them? They can get money for anything they want at any given time. They are the government, and there's no point in saying they're short of money because that doesn't wash for anybody anymore. If there's money needed in an emergency, they can get it. So we just say, get on with the job in hand and go do it. It sounds like in the in the midst of all the sadness and hunger and poverty and addiction, there's loads of positive stories as well. And it's brilliant. And I can see your eyes light up when you're talking about the lads and the activities and everything. And we touched on that walk and Kerry there, myself and Timmy was on that walk as well. It was about 17 of us and we'd done 27 kilometres to Gap of Dunlaw. Um, some of the, for, for some of the lads, the lockdown has been really tough for them. And some of them have relapsed. Some mental health wasn't great. Lockdown was tough on me too, believe me. That walk was not um, a luxury. It was an essential service. Mm -hmm. And you know, you were on about there about peeling the potatoes, five lads having a crack at the sink, peeling the potatoes. The informal work you can do when there's an activity is huge, you know. Um, And that's what we found. Over 27 kilometres, about five hours, you're talking with different individuals over the course of the walk. And we're all supporting each other. We're all talking about our mental health, our addiction, or what's going on for us. And by the time you get to the end of it, it's just it just reinvigorates you, you know. Exactly. And I remember we put a photograph up on Twitter, and we got slaughtered by the social distance police. But you know what? Sometimes you have to step in for a photograph. It was essential, it, you know. And kind of, you know, I just urge trolls to. Be mindful of people, mindful of you know, people. and and you know, there's people struggling out there, and their and, needs. yeah, and give people the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. So, look before we wrap up, if somebody wanted to donate or volunteer or get involved, how would they do it? Well, I suppose they'll contact us if they want to get involved at Penny Dinners, and if they want to donate, that's up on the the website. And again, 
nobody's paid inside in penny dinners. So that's why we were able to buy the house and save up for the warehouse. We also had another house bought and we look at that now shortly, like that has to be renovated. And um, But again, we take everything into consideration and we, we, we would again urge the, the government to take our feelings in penny dinners and our knowledge into consideration as well like other organisations that are out there, there's a, a huge amount of information and a huge amount of what works and what doesn't work out there. And we would urge the government, and especially Michal Martin, seeing as he's from Cork, to come down, you know, the best of people are involved in services down here and get in there and get stuck in there and let's do it together. Very good, very good. Any closing comments to me? No, uh, yeah, do you know what there actually is? Um, do I, I have a, a brother that... Um, I'm very, very, very grateful for the help Penny Dinners have given him, you know, because he's he just he's two years away from the drinking a drug there now lately and his life has transformed. This guy would have lived in sheds, would have squatted in anything he he could have lived in, you know. Um and when I see him getting clean, getting get coming away from alcohol and drugs and his behaviour is starting to change. I became really, really happy and all that was because of the help you got from yourself and Penny Dinners and the people within there, you know. Um, you put them up in a B&B for nine months, you know. You put them into an apartment, a brand new apartment. You know, I even get emotional thinking of it because there was a, like, I, there is no such thing as a hopeless case. And I see that through my own life, with my own family and other people that would have been given no hope. There is no such thing as a hopeless case. Never is. Um, and I just want to thank you and the rest of the people in Penny Dinners for possibly saving his life, you know, um, and helping him. You know, and I have a fantastic relationship with him now again today, better than we ever had before because we never had a relationship because the tools were destroyed from alcohol and drugs. And today we can phone each other most days and say hello. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes there's just a dead silence because yeah. we don't, don't know what to say because nothing has changed from the day before. But um, my sincere uh, gratitude and and thanks um okay. to yourself. And, and I suppose and, that's all any of us want to me. Like we yeah. all want to, to get on. You know, And I remember when the lads were in the Dragon Boat team, they they came second like for three years in a row. And I said, "What the hell am I going to do with them?" Like you know, and they were out there. And I said, oh, "Will they ever just win it?" Like you know, and what was happening to them at the last minute? And I remember Claire was there, and I could hear Claire screaming like you know, at Caleb like you know, and she was shouting and screaming like, "Come on, Caleb, come on!" You know, and I ran down. And I said, "Lads," I said, "That's your family up there and just screaming for you." I said, not so long ago, they were screaming at you. I said, win that <laughs> bloody know, race. <laughs> I was probably in that boat. I nearly died from one of them. <laughs> I know. And that, was, that was just um, yeah. the only thing I could think of, you know. And I remember afterwards when the lads came to me, he said, all I could hear was my name. He said, you know, being above everybody else. Like, I could, I could hear my name being screamed, you know, and shouted at that. And he said, it was a great feeling. Like, And he said, I wanted to, to win for that, you know, just... For the voice, like that was calling out, like for me, like instead of at me. Yeah, because you know? when and, you're, yeah. like when you're in addiction, yeah. you 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 know you're bringing shame on your family, and when you come into recovery, 
you want your family to be proud and you want to do things to make your family proud and you allow people to give you you give people the opportunity to do that um and on that beautiful note that was i was emotional listening to timmy there looking at you Mm -hmm. and i think it's just the perfect way to end this week's episode so i wholeheartedly thank you again for coming on you represented yourself and the organization beautifully um and we're very grateful for having you on and you'll always be a friend of the show and we stay in touch um and thanks again everybody for watching i hope you enjoyed it um i thoroughly enjoyed it about you tim yeah thank you very much not a bother um i got emotional myself there yeah, i don't know, I know if i was gonna break down <laughs> i know and uh, we are the two and podcast and we're powered by unity media network and in the next few weeks we have some excellent guests um john lanagan philly mcmahon and the rest so stay tuned and enjoy the show slan This episode is sponsored by local entrepreneur Danny O'Donovan of QuickMinutes.com. QuickMinutes is a specialized meeting management application that streamlines the administrative process in running a meeting. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.